Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mira, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to see all of you in our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium tonight. Uh, on view now and in its last weeks is Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, which is a fabulous exhibition uh, on um, how New York really was the center for technology innovation, and uh, I urge you to see it if you haven't already and return during regular museum hours. For those of you uh, who have um, young friends and family, the Art and Whimsy of Mo Willems is on our second floor. It's a really dazzling and charming exhibition, and even if you don't have young friends and family, I think you'll enjoy it. Tonight's program, the US Navy from the American Revolution to American Superpower is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to invite so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I would also like to recognize and thank uh, Cy Sternberg, our great trustee who is in the audience with us this evening. Thank you, Cy, for all you do on behalf of our great institution. I'm thrilled to recognize our great friend, the uh, tremendous Lincoln historian, Harold Holzer, who is also with us this evening, and to thank Harold for the myriad things he has done on behalf of this institution. Harold, it's great to, always great to have you with us. And of course, I want to thank my colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs, from whom you will hear at the end of this program. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Craig L. Simons back to the New York Historical Society. Professor Simons was professor of history at the US Naval Academy for 30 years and served as history department chair. He is the author or editor of 29 books, including Decision at Sea, which was the recipient of the Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt Prize, and the highly acclaimed Lincoln and his admirable, admir sorry, admirals, an admirable book, but it was Lincoln and his admirals, which was awarded the Lincoln Prize in 2009. In 2014, he received the Commodore Dudley W. Knox Lifetime Achievement Award from the Naval Historical Foundation. His latest book is The U.S. Navy, A Concise History. As always, before I invite Professor Simons to the stage, would you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off? And now, please join me in welcoming Craig Simons. Thank you, Louise, for that kind introduction. Welcome, everyone. It's nice to see so many people on a lovely spring afternoon here in New York City. The genesis for the talk I'm going to give tonight is a short book, and an emphasis on the word short, I suppose, that I wrote at the behest of my editor at Oxford University Press here in New York. Um, many of you no doubt, no doubt know that Oxford has a series called A uh, Very Short Introductions. Here are some of them on the screen. Uh, in which supposed experts in various fields offer brief summaries on a particular issue in an abbreviated format. Specifically, we are told to write no more than 30,000 words. Now, that's a lot if you're writing a paper for class. But if you're writing a 
history of the 250 years of the United States Navy, that's uh, pretty tough to do. If you don't know the series, I encourage you to look into it. It's not quite Cliff's Notes for Grown-Ups. Um, the idea is to force scholars to confront uh, subjects synthetically and look at their topics more broadly, even philosophically. There are literally hundreds of titles in this series, and the topics range from aristocracy and art history to utopianism and witchcraft. Some are remarkably ambitious, perhaps even a little esoteric. A few of my favorites are a very short introduction to complexity, <laughs> a very short introduction to free will, a very short introduction to ideology, and then there's this one. Now, the book I'm discussing tonight is in this series, and writing it forced me to think about the Navy in broad strokes, which is what I'm going to try to do. But instead of starting at the beginning, let me start instead with the end, with the present. Uh, and I want to be as clear as I possibly can about this. The United States Navy in 2016 is not only the most powerful sea force on the planet, it is the most powerful sea force that has ever existed. I wanted to make that point early because there has been some alarmist and frankly irresponsible rhetoric recently about how today's military and in particular today's Navy is a sad and declining shadow of its former self with a suggestion that we are letting things slide. The modern Jeremiah's note correctly that there are fewer ships in the United States Navy, fewer combat warships in the United States Navy than at any time since World War I. On VJ Day back in 1945, the United States had over 6,000 ships in commission, whereas today there are 230, excuse me, 283, and a construction program that uh, calls for a steady state force of 308 ships. That's certainly a reduction from 1945. But counting ships is not a particularly accurate yardstick for measuring a Navy's strength, influence, or capability, for it depends an awful lot on what those ships can do. That's where technology makes all the difference. An aircraft carrier in World War II displaced 30,000 tons and carried propeller-driven airplanes with a range of just under 200 miles that delivered bombs by aiming the dive bomber at the target and allowing gravity to do the rest. Today, U.S. carriers displace more than 110,000 tons. Their jet planes have a range of over 1,200 miles, and they carry laser-guided weapons so sophisticated that sailors in 1945 could not have imagined them. Even compared with other modern navies, the United States Navy is a uniquely awesome force. Here's what I think is a particularly useful comparison. One U.S. Navy nuclear-powered aircraft carrier battle group with its embarked airplanes and accompanying escorts, this force, has more potential firepower and destructive capability than the entire Navy of any other nation on Earth, and we have 10 of them. Indeed, there's only one other nuclear-powered aircraft carrier on the planet. Do you know which flag it flies? It's not Russia. It's not China. It is indeed French. 
This is the Charles de Gaulle, which has spent much of the spring carrying on operations against ISIS forces in Syria. So rest easy, everyone, no one, not Russia, not China, is going to catch up with the United States Navy in the lifetime of anyone now living. Of course, it was not always so. In the early days of the Republic, it was by no means certain that the United States would even have a Navy. And for about half of its history, until the last decade of the 19th century, there was a fierce national debate about it. The American Revolution was principally a land war, and the only important role played by Patriot sea forces was attacking British merchant shipping, an activity at which we proved pretty good. It was also mostly an entrepreneurial navy. In those days, a private citizen could apply for what was known as a letter of mark, a permission slip, if you would, to attack merchant ships of the enemy. The vessels that engaged in this practice were called privateers. They were small, lightly armed vessels, often with only one mast and perhaps with only one gun, as is the case with this particular vessel. And they were packed with men who could then serve as prize crews on the ships that they captured. They never fought a battle if they could possibly help it because their specific mission was to seize unarmed merchant ships. If they did, they got to keep the ship and everything in it. One or two such captures made them all rich, which is no doubt why these fellows seem to be cheering a little bit. It was not just their patriotic enthusiasm. During the war, some 800 American privateers put to sea and captured a total of 600 British merchant ships. This type of warfare not only made a number of opportunistic patriots rich, it wreaked havoc with British merchants, many of whom lost their ships and their cargoes, and all of which, even if they never saw a privateer, had to pay dramatically increased insurance rates on the ships they did send to sea. And naturally, they complained about all of this to their representatives in Parliament. And that created enormous pressure on the British government to stop this war. At the time, many Americans saw privateers as a kind of maritime militia. Like a militia, it was a military force that did not require a lot of government maintenance or oversight, since all of the expenses were borne by the ship owners. Even the men who manned the ships worked on spec. If they captured a ship, they got prize money. If they didn't, well, they went home with empty pockets. All the government had to do was print the permission slips. Thus, relying on privateers as the nation's primary sea force was like having a navy for free. There were limits to what such a force could do, of course. It could not fight off an enemy fleet. And there were many who insisted that a real nation, if that's who we thought we were, needed a real navy, one that could show the flag overseas, one that could not only attack the merchant ships of other nations, but protect the merchant ships of our own citizens, one that would command the respect of other nations. Privateers could not do any of those things. If you wanted that, you needed a nation of national warships, which in the age of sail meant ships of the line. This French three-decker is an example of the kind of warship possessed by European navies. 
and some Americans insisted that the United States should have at least some of them too, if for no other reason than as a symbol of nationhood. The problem, of course, is that they were enormously expensive. Even if the money could be found, there was no shipyard in America that could build one. And in any case, the United States could not build enough of them to make a difference in the European power balance. It would be, in the words of one opponent of the idea, like throwing gold into the sea. The best that Americans of this revolutionary generation could expect to do was to build a smaller type of warship called a frigate. Now that's a frigate just beyond the bow of the ship of the line here. Uh, here's a closer example. Again, this one is French. But the key feature of all frigates, of whatever nationality, was that single row of cannons along the side, port, and starboard of each vessel. They were much smaller than ships of the line and just within the hypothetical reach of the United States in its early years. During the Revolutionary War, the Americans authorized 13 of them. 13. 13 ships for 13 states. Thus creating what was called the Continental Navy. Alas, this effort to build a real navy was a disaster. Seven of the 13 had to be burned before they were even finished when the British captured the ports where they were being built. The other six did get to sea, but all six were immediately captured or destroyed by the British. Especially when compared to the success of the privateers, which cost nothing at all, it was a sad story of overreach. Now, the Continental Navy did have one bright spot during the Revolution. I could not go back to Annapolis after this talk if I did not mention John Paul Jones, <laughs> who gave the fledgling Navy its most dramatic success when he won a signal victory over a British frigate off the coast of England in command of a ship that had been given to him by the French, the Bonhomme Richard. That's the Richard on the right. This was the battle in which Jones when asked if he had struck his flag, reputedly replied, I have not yet begun to fight, and then went on to win the battle. Wouldn't have been quite as dramatic a phrase if he had ended up losing it afterward. <laughs> it was a feel-good moment for the Navy and for the nation, and still is for that matter, though it had little impact on the outcome of the war. Now, it's worth pausing to note here, and I'll come back to this later, that the crew on board the Bonhomme Richard and all of American, America's ships in the Continental Navy was pretty eclectic. Crew members came from almost every nation in Europe and were made up of a large number of Irishmen, Frenchmen, Portuguese, Africans, even some Englishmen. <clears throat> like ship captains in the age of sail from almost every nation, Jones would accept anyone who had two arms, two legs, who could pull on a rope or point a gun. If the few American naval successes like this one had little strategic impact on the outcome of the war, what did change the trajectory of the American Revolution was the French fleet. France became America's ally in 1777, and four years later in what was called the Battle of the Capes, a French fleet here on the left drove the British away from the Chesapeake Bay. That kept Cornwallis trapped at Yorktown and forced him to surrender to a Franco-American army under Washington. That 
and of course those scores of tiny privateers whose predation sapped the will of the British to keep going after Cornwallis surrendered is what ended the war. And once it was over, the American Navy virtually ceased to exist. The few remaining warships we had were sold off. The privateers all went back to being merchant sailors. To Americans in 1783, there seemed to be no good reason to have a Navy in peacetime. What would be the point? What revived it was a threat from the Barbary states of North Africa, who made a business of seizing the merchant ships of Western powers, including Americans, and holding them for ransom. To deal with that problem, Congress authorized the construction of six new frigates in 1794. Now, it's tempting to see this moment in 1794 as the time when the nation decided that it needed a navy after all. In fact, however, it was not really a decision to create a standing peacetime navy because the ships had been authorized for a very specific task. And in fact, it was written into the legislation that when that task was over, they would be decommissioned. Even had a phrase that said, if the pirates could be bought off instead, all construction work on the ships would be halted. And that's what happened. The pirates were bought off. After a year's worth of negotiations, we agreed to pay an annual tribute to the Barbary states because we calculated that it cost less to pay them off than it did to build those ships. Since three of them were all but finished by then, Congress agreed to go ahead and complete those three, but not the others. And that kind of set a pattern for American naval policy. Um, for the first century of American history, a small cadre of U.S. ships, a handful of sloops, two or three frigates, carried out the quotidian duties of a constabulary navy. And then when roused by an emergency, problems with the French in 1798 or problems with the British in 1812, then we built up a temporary wartime fleet, which once the war was over, was generally discarded. If you made a graph of the growth and development of the United States Navy, it would not be a steady upward slope. It would look something like a sine wave, oscillating up and down between periods of quiet torpor, followed by periods of frenetic expansion, and then subsequent decommissioning. It was a pattern that characterized U.S. Navy and U.S. Navy policy until the eve of the Civil War. Now, the Civil War was clearly a defining moment in the history of the United States for lots of reasons. And it was a pivot point in the development of American Navy, too, partly because of changing technology. This is a slide from Harper's Weekly during the war that shows sailing ships, paddle steamers, and what were called screw steamers. That's not a sailor's curse. That means a ship that had a propeller at the stern. And it suggests both the growth and the eclectic character of the Navy that fought in the Civil War era. On the eve of the war, though the Navy had embraced several new technologies, especially the use of steam, it remained very small by global standards. When the war began, there were only 42 United States Navy ships. But then, true to the historical pattern, it was dramatically expanded to meet the crisis of civil war. Eventually, it reached a peak in 1865 of 671 ships. 
And that Navy conducted a blockade of the southern coast, fought alongside the Army up and down the length of America's western rivers, and chased down Confederate commerce raiders on five oceans. For the first time in a war, the United States had the superior naval fleet, and it made a significant contribution to Union victory. But once again, almost the moment the war ended, the Navy contracted to its pre-war numbers. By 1870, there were only 52 ships on the Navy's register. Much of that retraction made sense. Of the 671 that had existed on the day Lee surrendered to Grant, 418 of them were converted merchant ships, useful in blockade duty, no doubt, but of almost no value at all in dealing with a European power. Others were river gunboats or ironclads that could serve in harbors, but not on the open ocean. Even so, many critics, both at the time and in particular subsequently, looked back on this moment and said, what a missed opportunity this was. The post-Civil War Navy seemed to retreat not only in size, shrinking from 671 down to 52, but also in the abandonment of many of the technological innovations that had characterized the new style of naval war. You see all the steam-powered ships here. Most of the ships the Navy relied on after 1870 were like these, and they were called auxiliary steamers. Here's one of them, close up. They were essentially sailing ships that had a steam boiler for use in emergencies. You can see the smokestack between the foremast and the mainmast that marks it as a steamship. So why did the Navy so readily abandon the technology that the nations of Europe were fully embracing? It was not that Navy leaders were obtuse. Well, no more obtuse than usual, but. It was because these ships would mostly be serving on distant stations in the Mediterranean, off the China coast, off the coast of Africa, thousands of miles from a home port, and the United States possessed no overseas bases where they could recoal. Refuel, we would say today. That made coal-burning steamships utterly dependent on foreigners for fuel. So what they did was move about from place to place using sail power, and they fired up the boilers only in case of emergencies. In fact, there was a regulation passed in the 1880s that any captain who fired up his boilers had to record the reason in the ship's log in red ink. Red ink being a metaphor for how much it cost to buy all that coal. Nor, as you can see, were these post-Civil War ships armored. Despite the momentous milestone battle of the Monitor in the Virginia, formerly the Merrimack, in Hampton Roads during the Civil War, America's ocean-going ships after the war were wooden-hulled and unarmored. The 60 Monitors that had been built by the Union during the Civil War were all laid up in ordinary, what today we would call mothballs. Though big Navy advocates insisted this was a mistake, most Americans at the time saw it in pragmatic terms. The 50 ships we had were all that we needed for the limited jobs they were assigned. Why build and maintain an expensive war fleet when there was no evident mission for them? And having a big fleet could actually get us into trouble. If trouble came nonetheless, why then, we would do what we had always done and build up the fleet once again. 
Now, the point when all this changed came at the end of the 19th century, and there were three reasons for it. First, the old ships, like the USS Wachusett, which is the one I'm showing you here, were simply wearing out. It was evident that they would soon have to be replaced, and it was only logical to replace them with ships that contained most of the new technology. Now, that in itself did not constitute a change in policy, not yet anyway, because the ships were expected to perform pretty much the same tasks as the older ships. A second reason, and a far more important one, actually had nothing to do with the Navy at all. American attention in the 30 years after the end of the Civil War was focused largely inward, on the South, where Reconstruction issues dominated national politics, and on the West, where the Homestead Act opened new lands for settlement, and the railroads made those lands accessible. In 1875, Indian wars seemed a far more proximate threat to most Americans than anything that might come from overseas. That changed right about 1890. By then, Reconstruction had been resolved by what was essentially a northern capitulation. Worn out by passive and active resistance, northerners agreed to let southerners make their own rules about race relations, which brought about the social arrangement known as Jim Crow that became a national, not just a sectional, protocol for American race relations. And at about the same time, the national census, which as you know is taken in every year that ends with a zero, indicated in 1890 that there was no longer any part of the American West that was considered unsettled or open frontier. Not that the West was filled up, still isn't. Fly to California, all you have to do is look down. But it was no longer a blank slate. These altered circumstances led Americans to begin to look outward rather than simply inward. And a third influence that same year was that an otherwise obscure Navy captain named Alfred Thayer Mahan published a book based on a series of lectures he'd given at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, in which he showed how the small island country of Great Britain had managed to become the greatest power on earth, the possessor of an empire on which the sun never set. The secret, he asserted, was sea power. Its fleet of battleships allowed it to secure the sea lanes, and that brought wealth through trade, which brought power. Here was a simple formula for any nation bold enough to follow it. Mahan's book did not cause the change in American naval policy. As I noted, larger national forces did that but he offered a rationale and a justification for a change in national outlook and national policy that was already underway. Up to now, the controlling questions about what kind of navy the United States should have had been pragmatic in nature. If piracy was a problem, well, build a squadron of some sloops or maybe a frigate or two. Smugglers, gunboats or harbor craft. For the Civil War, you need blockading ships, we'll convert some merchant vessels to blockade use. But Mahan insisted that nations could rise to the status of a great power only by the possession of battleships. And it was battleships we began to build in 1890. By 1896, we had five of them. Not for any particular purpose, 
but in the conviction that a great nation should have some battleships. And in 1898, we used them to defeat Spain in what Secretary of State John Hay called a splendid little war. The Spanish-American War is less remembered today than the longer and bloodier wars of the 20th century, but it was very much a milestone, or should I say watershed, in our national history, for it marked America's coming out party as a great power. In two quick and decisive naval engagements, the new battleships of the revived U.S. Navy utterly destroyed older and weaker Spanish squadrons at both Manila Bay and in the, Philippine, in the Philippines and off the coast of Cuba at Santiago. These swift and easy and, for the United States, very nearly bloodless victories led to a peace settlement in which the United States acquired its first important overseas possessions. We had previously claimed the unoccupied atoll of Midway in 1867, but now as a result of the Spanish-American War, we acquired Puerto Rico in the Caribbean and a change of outposts in the Pacific that included Hawaii and Wake and Guam and the Philippines, almost like stepping stones across the broad Pacific to the great China market. These new possessions not only provided the coaling stations that now we at last had to keep our battleships fueled on distant stations, they created an overseas empire and a new interest in protecting and defending that empire. It was, as the saying goes, a sea change. Sorry. The 20th century was the American century. From 1901 to 2000, the United States emerged from its self-imposed cocoon to become first an emerging power, then a dominant power, and finally the most powerful nation on earth. From the founding of the nation, the opponents of naval expansion had argued that the mere possession of a war fleet would drag us into the power squabbles of Europe. That view had dominated in the United States for 125 years, but in 18, 1900, 1890, in that era, there were many who saw great power status not as something to be avoided, but as a prize to be pursued. Among them was the 20th century's first president, the young and vigorous Theodore Roosevelt, whose statue we walked past coming down to the auditorium tonight. Here he is looking characteristically bellicose. I told my wife as we passed that statue, Teddy would have loved that. He looked so muscular in that statue. T.R. had been a navalist since boyhood, when he had been a collector of all things naval. He even wrote his Harvard University senior thesis on naval battles of the War of 1812, a book which, by the way, is still in print. Like Churchill, who in many ways he foreshadowed, Roosevelt was both a prolific writer and a champion of big navies. He was assistant secretary of the Navy during McKinley's first term as president and became his vice president during that abbreviated second term. After McKinley was assassinated in 1901, Roosevelt presided over what to that point was the largest peacetime naval expansion in history. Between 1906 and 1908, the United States commissioned no fewer than 13 new battleships. And significantly, they were not part of a buildup in anticipation of war or any perceived overseas crisis, but rather as a manifestation of the nation's decision 
or at least its willingness to possess itself of a permanent large combat fleet. In 1909, Teddy sent it around the world on what was advertised as a goodwill trip, but which was in fact a declaration of America's arrival on the world stage as a great power. Because the battleships were all painted in their peacetime white, it came to be known as the Great White Fleet. Apparently they weren't worried about air pollution in those days. When the First World War broke out in 1914, the United States immediately declared its determination to remain uninvolved, though inevitably perhaps the vortex of war drew us in anyway. Ostensibly, the reason was American opposition to Germany's decision to employ unrestricted submarine warfare. But a larger reason was that by the early 20th century, the United States had become too prominent, too powerful to remain uninvolved. Ironically, once we did declare war, we learned that the ships most needed by our new allies were not battleships. Britain had plenty of those, thank you very much. What they wanted and needed were escorts for the convoys to fend off the German U-boats. The United States therefore set aside the half-completed battleships it had begun in 1916 and instead built hundreds of smaller warships. By 1919 and the end of the war, the United States had become the largest naval power on Earth. Or it would be as soon as it finished those battleships still sitting on the building ways from that 1916 authorization. Traditionally now, according to the sine wave theory of history, the United States would now begin to divest itself of these ships, and to a certain extent it did. But it did so in a way that allowed it to maintain its global superiority it invited the other great naval powers to come to Washington and agree on a formula whereby each nation got to keep a certain number of battleships. The United States and Britain got to be co-equal at number one. Japan, France, and Italy got lesser numbers. It was a remarkable achievement, even then. And while it certainly did not prevent future wars, it did save each participating country billions of dollars or pounds or yen. It was in World War II that the United States swiftly outpaced all other navies on the planet. Given full reign at last to its unmatched industrial capability, the United States now built ships in numbers and sizes previously unimaginable. This is a photograph from one of 19 Henry J. Kaiser shipbuilding yards in 1943. It shows the swing shift workers coming in to replace the day shift workers, and they would be replaced by the night shift workers as the workday went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week on both coasts of the United States. Having entered the war with 11 battleships and seven carriers, the United States emerged in 1945 with 120 battleships and heavy cruisers, and counting escort carriers, 100 carriers. It was not only the largest navy on Earth, it was three times larger than all the other navies on Earth combined. Now the sine wave did ease down after 1945, in the 18 months after VJ Day, the Navy processed out three and a half million men, scrapped and mothballed thousands of ships, but this time it did not return to its traditional peacetime torpor. Due to almost immediate onset of the Cold War, 
the United States kept more than 1,000 ships on active service. And since then, the Navy has fluctuated in size between 300 and 600. Ronald Reagan somewhat famously tried to boost the numbers to 600, almost made it, reached a peak of 592 in 1989, though that included a number of refurbished older ships that were kept on active service more to make a statement than for any particular need. The numbers dropped back down to 300 or so soon afterward and reached a low in 2007 at 278. As I mentioned at the outset, the number today is 283 with a steady state uh, number of 308 built into the construction program. Now, critics are correct to note that by historic standards, this is a relatively no number. But as I have suggested, it is also very misleading. Destroyers in 1942 displaced 1,200 tons. Today, they displace 7,000 tons. So a one-to-one -one comparison is inappropriate. In 1942, they fired five-inch guns. Today, they fire missiles with a range of over 1,500 miles. The real difference in outlook is that the nation has now accepted and even embraced the notion that we should not only have a powerful Navy, but that it should be and indeed must be the most powerful Navy on Earth, and that the United States should shoulder the responsibility of patrolling the world's oceans not only for ourselves, but for others. Whether that is a good thing or a bad thing or simply a fact of life is a conversation for another time. Now, I'm almost finished, and then we can go to Q&A. I want to say a few more things about the Navy as an institution, but if, if this has sparked some questions in your mind, it might be a good time for some of you to get up and line up behind the two microphones in the two aisles here, and I'll get with you in just a minute or two. I do want to point out, though, that like all national and public institutions, the U.S. Navy is a mirror of our culture and our values as well as our strength. And there are several ways in which the US Navy today is dramatically different from what it was in the 19th century, and for that matter, most of the 20th century. As I noted earlier, the principal duty of crewmen aboard ships in the age of sail was to move heavy objects around, which is why, especially in Britain, men were recruited simply by banging them over the head with a marlin spike and dragging them on board. We were a bit more subtle in the United States, but not particularly picky. By the 20th century, this was no longer the case, not only due to a more enlightened view of citizen rights, but also because the service in the late 20th and in the 21st century particularly requires much more of sailors. Here are a few of the current ratings for which our enlisted men now serve. Aviation electronics technician, information systems technician, missile technician, though the traditionalists among you will be glad to hear we still have bosun's mates and gunner's mates. The Navy is demographically different too. Blacks have served in the United States Navy from its earliest days. Historically, blacks have made up between 13 and 20% of all Navy crewmen since its founding. And for that reason, President Truman's executive order desegregating the US military had less immediate impact on the US Navy than it did on the Army. On the other hand, Persons of color, particularly blacks and Filipinos, were often restricted to particular duties, especially as steward's mates or what were at the time called mess boys. If you remember the scene in the Kane Mutiny, one of my favorite all-time films, 
when Humphrey Bogart insisted that the mess boys had eaten the strawberries. Even after World War II, officers were all white, as they are here, and blacks and Filipinos were limited to service as cooks, servers, or in some other support role. That began changing in the 1960s and 70s, and obviously there are no such restrictions today. Today, 10% of America's admirals, exactly 10%, 16 of 160, are African-American. Nor is the Navy any longer all-male. Women began serving in the Navy as early as the Civil War when they acted as nurses. Interestingly, by the way, when the call for nurses went out, the expectation was that they would all be male nurses. When women volunteered, no one quite knew what to do about it, and so their service was accepted. During the World Wars of the 20th century, the Navy's manpower needs were such that the Navy reached out to women to serve in a much wider variety of roles. There is irony and obvious sexism evident in this recruiting poster from 1917. Within months, however, women did indeed join the Navy, initially accepted as secretaries and administrators, but then in a wide variety of posts, though not yet, on combat ships. In World War II, the Navy eagerly sought women for what was called the WAVES, an acronym for Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service. And by 1943, there were 27,000 of them. And this time, they served not just in administrative capacities, but in a wide variety of duties, including pilots and air crews. And the Navy's enlisted force today reflects the nation at large. Here are some stats, just for fun. 20% of Navy personnel self-identify as black today, 20%, slightly larger than in the population as a whole, which is 13%, a number which surprised me, by the way. I would have guessed a higher number. Latinos make up 16%, which is exactly the same as their representation in the population. 18% are women, and the laws that previously barred them from combat have come down too. The last barrier was breached in 2011 when two women reported on board one of the Navy's nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines. And finally, gays and lesbians now serve openly. For 200 years, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, made homosexuality a crime, grounds for physical punishment as well as dishonorable discharge. No more. So that is a very short introduction to the United States Navy, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. We'll start right here. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for a great talk, Professor Simons. My question is, what happened to the ships that were decommissioned after World War II? Were they sold off? Could people use them as freighters or, or luxury ships? Is any of that possible? All of the above. All of the above is the answer. Uh, a number of ships were remained in, in uh, ready reserve status. In other words, they would, could be called into active service. They put cosmoline grease over all the working parts and simply lined up, up in rows in Philadelphia and New York and Long Beach and all over the place, Bremerton, Washington. A number were sold to the na navies of other nations. Uh, small European powers, Greece, uh, Italy in particular, purchased American ships that remained on active service for another 30 or 40 years in some cases. South American navies took an, and a number were turned, frankly, into razor blades. So the answer is, the short answer is all of the above. Thank you. Okay, we'll go over here, yes, sir. Um, I want to refer to your opening remarks to give us comfort, and you came back to it at the end. And as I understand it, 
the comfort is based upon the extremely stronger technological ships we have today, even though the number of ships is much below what it was. Those who claim that the current Navy um, are, have weakened, uh, is a weakened Navy, refer to the many different points uh, in, the, in the world in which we have enemies and in which the Navy is needed including, yeah. for example, near Iran. Yeah, no, that's a good point. If you have 283 ships, there are only 283 places you can be at the same time, without a doubt. Uh, on the other hand, the reach of those ships is so much greater. I mean, I used aircraft carriers as an example. Let me quickly use a submarine as an example. Say one submarine in World War II and one submarine today. The, an Ohio-class submarine today costs $6 billion. And in steady state, inflation-adjusted terms, you could buy a 150 to 200 World War II submarines. Now, their capability would be less, but they could be in 200 places. On the other hand, that one Ohio-class submarine, instead of having 24 torpedoes, has 24 Trident missiles, each warhead of each uh, missile of which has eight independently targetable nuclear warheads on it, which means you can send 192 bombs bigger than the one that destroyed Hiroshima from one sub. And we've got 18 of them. But wouldn't, wouldn't so, so you are correct in that there, it does limit our ability to f confront a crisis here and here and here all at the same time. And doesn't that it, is a true limitation. And doesn't it limit it when, on a surprise attack, a la Pearl Harbor, uh, some of them are destroyed very quickly, we don't have the substitutes. Yes, yeah, so the difficulty is you're going to build 150 Ohio-class submarines. It would bankrupt the country. But your point is well made. You're right. If you have 300 ships, you can only go 300 places. That is a true thing. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, for an extraordinarily well-organized presentation. And I want to go back to some of the obscure historical things that you mentioned. Would you be good enough to remind us about the prize system and compare and contrast the participation of Royal Navy officers, who I understand from reading Jane Austen, got rich when they defeated enemy ships, right. with whether the United States Navy, the official Navy, ever participated in such a prize system? Yes, it did. The prize system was an honored tradition right up through the end of the 19th century. It's actually a little bit of trivia here. There were two entrepreneurial American citizens who applied for a letter of marque in the Vietnam War. <laughs> they didn't get it, but good for them. Um, in the 19th century in particular, and, and in a bit into the 20th century, there were privateers in the Spanish-American War, for example. Uh, the idea was that not only did privateers make money entrepreneurially, but if you were the captain of a warship, a commissioned warship of a sovereign nation, you also got prize money. In the United States Navy, what they did was they took 20, I think it was 25% of the money, and they put it into a sailor's relief fund for widows and orphans of sailors killed in war. But the other 75% was distributed to the crew that made the capture. As usual, the captain got the most, the officers got, and then the, you know, the ship's boy got the least amount and so on. The old joke in the Navy was, oh, if only casualties were distributed the way prize money was. You know? uh, but it is true that, as Jane Austen points out, Royal Navy officers often got quite rich. Uh, if they were on particular stations where there were lots of enemy merchant traffic, every ship that they captured, not only did they have to, but if you were the commanding officer of the squadron, every ship captured by any ship in your squadron, whether you were there or not, you got a chunk of that. So, yeah, they got very rich. Um, now, in the United States Navy, uh, 
there was less of that. We didn't. We had fewer wars against the French. Only one. Darn it. But uh, that was the great opportunity for the English to get rich. But short answer is yes. We did use the prize system in the United States Navy. Yes, sir. Annapolis is the uh, focal point of my two questions. Has the enrollment varied after 1990 when you said that there was the diminution of the number of ships? And given the obvious need for science and engineering prowess, is there still room? What's the average midshipman's requirement as far as liberal art courses? Okay, let me do the first one first. The uh, applications to the Naval Academy, that one is not a sine wave. That has gone straight up and then even higher. Uh, uh, 9-11 was a giant boost. I think uh, they increased by something like 80% or more after 9-11, uh, but they remained high and continue high. I've forgotten what the number, I served on the admissions board for a number of years, but I've been retired for a decade now, so my numbers may not be up to date, but I, I think that we get to something like 25,000 applicants for roughly 1,200 positions. Um, and even the applicants we get, we had to turn down people that I thought were absolutely splendid. Uh, so the quality remained high. The numbers remained very high. As far as uh, the specialties, what happens at the Naval Academy is different from almost any other institution in the world. And that is to say every student gets a Bachelor of Science degree, every student, because the required core of 125 credit hours is very heavy in math and science. Every single student takes four semesters of calculus and differential equations. Every student takes two semesters of mechanical engineering, two semesters of physics, two semesters of chemistry, two semesters of electrical engineering. Every student, including English majors. Then they take a major on top of that. Now, we do have very strong and, and viable liberal arts majors, but they get a Bachelor of Science degree in English literature, a Bachelor of Science degree in history, for example. And the engineers who do major in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, mathematics, they are required to take courses in two semesters of English, three semesters of history, two semesters of political science, and other courses in the liberal arts. So. The downside of all that, I mean, it's a feel-good moment. Aren't we great? The downside of all that is the average number of credit hours they take to graduate is around 150, and they have to do it in four years. There are no stretch-outs at the academy. So it makes for a very crowded regimen. It's almost like being a, a resident in medical school. I mean, they, they don't get any sleep for quite a long time. It's, it's tough. Um, yes, sir? The Chinese have stated that they will make great strides in anti-carrier technology and there'll be floating coffins in five to 10 years. Uh, to what degree might they have some substance and to what degree will this impair our utilization of our carriers? The difficulty with putting so many eggs in so few baskets in terms of the large nuclear-powered aircraft carriers is that they are, have a big target on them. And technology, uh, defense technology is very good, but so is offense technology. The Chinese, as you know, are building these bases in the South China Sea that they're building up from submarine atolls and putting on them anti-ship missile technology. That's a, that's a threat. That's a risk. Uh, we have good countermeasures to deal with those. Uh, but is it true that uh, the problem is a 110,000-ton carrier with a crew of 6,000 on board, if it goes down, that is such a huge event that it makes the Lusitania and even Pearl Harbor look like child's play. It would require 
a major response that would be precipitous, I suspect, into war. So that is a problem with the big carriers. That is absolutely true. Um, so even during the days when the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union, they did not build carriers. And the Chinese have, have one and, and claim to be building a second. Um, but they are investing most of their dollars in anti-carrier technology. So it's something we're very aware of, very sensitive to. And it, it, it uh, begs the question as to whether or not maybe some of that spending money might be spread out rather than 11 or 12 nuclear-powered carrier groups. Maybe instead of that, we'd have, this gentleman suggested, 20 or 30 uh, frigate-based uh, so groups. deployment would be radically altered? Uh, it Potentially. Potentially, yes. Okay. I do not speak, by the way, for the Department of the Navy. I want to make that very clear here. This, Yes, sir. Uh, in that connection, what are your thoughts on the littoral combat ship program, since it seems to have seen some controversy? Yeah, the, for those who don't know, the littoral combat ship um, has been and is controversial. It's, it looks pretty much uh, like a, a hermaphrodite carrier. It's, it's, a, it's a big hull ship. It uh, could displace as much as 40,000 ton, which makes it as big as a World War II aircraft carrier. Uh, and it was designed to carry a marine expeditionary unit that could be put ashore quickly in any place where a crisis emerges. But by trying to put so many capabilities into a single hull, it wasn't clear whether it was an amphibious ship or an attack ship or a frigate. They've actually retitled a number of them as frigates recently, and they've cut back in the number they're going to build. That's a technology that's kind of beyond my ability to discuss as an historian, but I think it's reflective of the problem that a Navy has to be constructed to meet the needs, not just of the year it's being built, but of 20 years beyond that. And we don't ever know exactly what those needs are going to be. But the littoral combat ship is one of the things, along with carriers, along with the Ohio-class submarine, uh, that the Navy is, is watching very closely. I noticed the Navy submitted a report to Congress on March 17th of this month, just recently, with its out uh, its projections for the next 20 years of construction and the littoral combat ships, had six of them had been stricken from the list. So it looks like they're moving away from that. I'm sorry, that's not a more... No, thanks very much. I think this will be the last question. Yes, sir. Um, I'd just like to thank you for the wonderful presentation. Oh, good. I th thank you very much. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, my question goes back a little bit. Uh, I was wondering, how did the London Naval Treaty affect uh, the United States Navy during World War II? How did the London Naval Treaty affect the United States Navy? The, the Navy, the treaty I talked about in my talk, where they came up with a formula for allowing each nation to have a certain number of battleships, that was in 1922. It was followed up in 1930 by an effort to add limits to all the other kinds of ships as well. The United States went to the conference trying to ban submarines altogether. Well, these are terrible things. They sink on our merchant ships and people die. It's just awful. Well, the smaller nations wouldn't buy that. The French and the Italians, who, of course, were weaker than the British and the Americans, said, well, wait a minute, we need our submarines to defend ourselves. And we said, but they're such awful weapons. And they said, well, yeah, airplanes can bomb cities. You're going to ban airplanes? You know, it's not what the thing is capable of doing. It's what you do with it. So what they decided to do instead was agree not to use it to sink merchant ships. Oh, that's good. Um, but the London Naval Conference really kind of fell apart. The only agreement that came out of it 
was an agreement to, to take that formula, 553, 1.75, 1.75, as it applied to Great Britain, the United States, Japan, France, and Italy, and apply it to heavy cruisers, which were defined as a very specific size of ship, 10,000 tons, 8-inch guns. And so those limits went into effect. But before the Second World War began, in the middle of the 1930s, first Japan, Germany was never part of this. Of course, they weren't allowed to have a navy at all by virtue of the Versailles Treaty. But first Japan and then Italy and then others just backed out of the treaty. And so by the time Pearl Harbor came about, it was entirely moot. So the short answer, and I guess it's too late for that, isn't it? The short answer to that would be, I don't think it affected American naval policy really very much. Okay? You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Craig Simons. This was wonderful. You know, I want to tell all of you in the audience, um, we have a special treat tomorrow night. If you're up for it, we are screening seven days in May. And we're having Ron Simon, who's the senior curator at the Paley Center, who will discuss the director's, uh, his name is um, Frankenheimer. It was John Frankenheimer, correct? Yeah. John Frankenheimer's relationship with the screenwriter, who is Rod Serling. And for any of you who have, who have loved Rod Serling's programs, Twilight Zone and other programs, the script is, the dialogue is so Rod Serling and so wonderful. It, it's just, isn't it wonderful? It is. Yep. Craig is going to join us. He, he uh, at the last minute, I called him and I was trying to get a little background on uh, part of the story, or the, the big story is that it's pitting the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff against the president. The president had just signed a nuclear disarmament. Now don't give it away, Gail. I'm not giving you the, it's, you find out that out at the beginning, anyway. And uh, there's a big conflict there. And so I wanted to know more about the Joint Chiefs of Staff, their history, I called Craig, it was a fascinating phone call, and I said, what are you doing Friday night? And he will be here on stage with us, joining Ron, uh, Ron Simon, and uh, I invite you all to come. It's the, these are wonderful programs, they're free with admission. Of course, if you're a member, you come anyway. And it's a great, great film. Stay for the book signing tonight, and have a great night. Thank you. Thank you.